This is the Ned Group Investments Podcast, a space where you can learn more about our fund managers, the funds they manage, as well as getting up-to-date and important developments affecting the investment world and how they might be relevant to you. Good morning, the Ned Group Investments Insights at 10 series. My name is Nick Andrew, and for those who don't know me, I head up Ned Group Investments. It's my pleasure to be your host, Neil is Director of Behavioral Insights uh, of, B- of BIQ, an award-winning fintech company based in the UK that's helping advisors understand their clients. He's a specialist on subconscious behaviors that drive our decisions. But most importantly, and what I really like, is he's renowned for bridging the complex theory with the real-world understanding, especially in relations to decisions that involve money. Module one is titled Being Human During Times of Uncertainty. Today, Neil is going to go right back to the beginning and take us on a journey of evolution. He's going to look at uncertainty, complexity and fear, as well as explore why what we say to clients and how we say it really matters. Neil, it seems an absolute age since we were speaking at our investment conference in London in February, I hope you're well and safe, enjoying some sunshine in the Isle of Wight, and we look forward to listening and learning on how best to engage with our clients. It's a real, real pleasure and honour, Nick, to be here. And hasn't the world changed since we met in London last time? Indeed. (laughs) So um, I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to crack straight straight on. And Nick, the introduction absolutely perfectly tees up what I'm about to talk about over the next 45 minutes, really, which hopefully should give us some time to quest for questions at the end. So this is a this is a three part uh, presentation, and so be, be, between parts one, two, and three, there is an overarching narrative, and that overarching narrative is all about human behaviour in relation to financial planning. And I'm going to break it down into three constituent parts. And today I'm going to start with looking or being human during times of uncertainty. So I'm, I'm only going to touch on some of the behavioural aspects today. But in part two, which is taking place on Wednesday, I'm going to do a proper deep dive into behavioural biases and, and hopefully reveal some of them with every single person on the call. So even though this is there's a restriction to a degree on the interaction. I want that to be as interactive as we can possibly make it. So in order to kind of look at what's going on in people's heads during times of uncertainty, we absolutely need to paint a a, a picture of who we are as a species and what that means in the in relation to how we make decisions. And in order to do this, we have to go back and, and kind of fill in all of the gaps from an evolutionary perspective, because what that does is it gives you gives us the framework and the context to understand why we are how we are in the year 2020. So our journey starts a long time ago. We all know this. Right. And, and, and the, I'm using the figure of five and a half million. And I'll tell you why. Because actually anthropologists would say that we kind of our species began around about three and a half million years ago with Australopithecus. But actually in the Tujan Hills in Kenya a a while back now, there was remains of a bipedal um, skeleton found and they aged that through science at five and a half million years ago. They called that Auroran Tujanensis of the Tujan Hills after the Tujan Hills in Kenya where it was discovered. 
And it is believed that this is our oldest ancestor. This is the time when we climbed out of trees and became bipedal, walked around on two legs. Now, over the course of a long time, of course, we develop as a species, right? So if we move forward from that point to 4,000 years ago, what we get here is we get early humans starting to have a cognitive ability to figure out ways to hunt and to take the, the, the things that we're finding in the landscape around them and to put them together to create incredibly primitive um, weapons so that they could hunt. So putting um, stones on the end of on the end of sticks to make very early spears, for example. So it's interesting that, you know, that was that was kind of like at the top end of our cognitive capacity, if you like. But actually, just to get to that point, if you look at the figures, has taken 5.1 million years to evolve, you know, from a brain perspective to get to that point. If we go forward from 4,000 years to 150,000 years ago, this is where we start to develop complex speech and symbolism. Now, this is where, we, you know, there's a, there's a whole um, a, a whole series of photographs and evidence of symbolism found in caves around the world. And I always find this quite interesting, that it was 150,000 years ago that this was discovered. And one of those symbols, which is on the screen, which is which was, is called the cross hatch, is still used today, um, although we call it the hashtag. It was used even before the Internet era as the pound key on telephones. Um, but that symbol has always been with us. And it's quite interesting, actually, if you look at the catalogue of symbolism from that time, there are still many symbols 150,000 years ago that we use today. If we move forward to 50,000 years ago, then this is where we get to the birth of modern man. This is the kind of the species that we recognise in ourselves. And this is where we start to do things like bury our dead ritually. It's where we realise that we, we could be making the clothes from the hides of the animals that we've hunted. And it's where we develop much more complex and um, collaborative hunting techniques as a species. And again, if you look at the timestamp between that point and the point at the beginning, this has taken us, in essence, five million years to get to this point. So evolution isn't a rapid thing, which I'm, we, we all know this, right? Zoom forward to 6,000 years ago. And this is where you get to the first real civilization on Earth, the Sumerians of Mesopotamia. This is where we start to do things like have um, hierarchical structures. This is where we where we have a society that we would recognize in our societies of today. Now, the Sumerians of Mesopotamia also invented, as in the, how we would recognize it today, writing. But again, that was 6,000 years ago. So where we, this is a, a quite an interesting point to, to pause to a degree by moving forward another 500 years to the Tudor period. Because if we just reflect back on that journey that we've taken, you know, and we go back to the 150,000 years ago, humans developed complex speech and symbolism. So we're already carving symbols in the wall. 6,000 years ago, the Sumerians invent writing as we kind of know it. And then if you go forward just to 500 years ago to the Tudor period, what you find is many statistics would show you how slow we've evolved. But some of them are um, are still with us today. So if we take one as an instance and we take the, the measure of illiteracy in the in, in, in the Tudor period, 70 percent of males were illiterate and 90 percent of females were illiterate which is a huge number given that writing 
has been around for 6,000 years at this point, or 5,500 years at this point. It's a really quite interesting insight into how the brain deals with new skills, and especially when those new skills are complex. And for anybody on this call who's ever tried to learn a new language, you will understand exactly what that means. Learning a new language is a difficult skill, else everybody would do it all of the time. And this kind of falls loosely into, into that camp. Now, if we zoom forward to today, to the year 2020, this is where we kind of, you know, our life has fundamentally changed. And, and I'm going to touch on this in a second. But one aspect that I want to bring, bring back in is this, because what we assume especially for, from a financial, um, a financial literacy perspective, is that, yes, illiteracy rates in the Tudor period were sky high, but people make the assumption that that's not the case today. Well, actually, in the UK, if you look at the Office of National Statistics website and you start to look at illiteracy in the UK, 15% of the UK adult population fall into the classification as functionally illiterate. And what that means when you start breaking down the data is that on average in the UK, the reading age is only nine, nine years old. And the average numeracy age, the ability to do basic mathematics skills is 11 years old. And this data, by the way, if you start looking at data similar around the world, is remarkably similar around the world, especially in, in the bigger developed countries. Now, this poses a problem in itself because what we do as human beings is we use ourselves and our skill and our abilities as the benchmark for every other human being that we interact with. So if I can pick up a, a, a thick, complex novel and start reading it and, and, I, and I can compute it and I can understand it, there is a chance that I would just assume that anybody could pick up the book and read it and understand it. And I think that often can do people a disservice because we are presenting them, especially in our industry, with documentation and literature, et cetera, et cetera, that contains regulatory heavy or complex language on the assumption that every single one of those clients will be able to read and understand everything that we've put in front of them. And I think I'm going to kind of nail my colors to the mast here, if you like, I think that that is a wrong starting point because I I, I would suggest that there are people within your, um, your client base, if you like, who will have lesser skills when it comes to reading and, and understanding the data that we're putting in front of them more so than somebody else. And I'm going to come on to what that means as I end today's presentation. Now, what becomes really obvious or apparent when you're looking at the evolutionary story of us as a human species is that we evolve very, very slowly. That's pretty obvious. But the world around us is evolving at a phenomenal speed. It's kind of like a real tortoise and the hare situation. So the pro and this creates a whole raft of problems for us as, as a species. So kind of what you end up with is our biology slowly, slowly moving along, our brain slowly, slowly developing, and the society around us and technology around us evolving at warp speed. And our brain is always playing catch up with what's going on around us. And the problem that gives us is it creates multiple cognitive conflict points. So we are having to learn new skills and new language 
at a speed like we never have before. And for, for a species whose brain really, really takes its time to evolve, it basically puts us into a position where we end up doing things quickly because we become overloaded with information that we find it difficult to compute. So it, it sees us thinking quickly as the kind of the, the, the norm, if you like. Whereas when we're making important decisions and we're interacting with the world around us in an ideal world, and I know that's never gonna happen, we should be able to slow down, take in everything that's going on and make a decision off the back of that. But that's just not what's happening, one, with how we're wired, but two, with the world around us and the speed at which that moves. And there are three areas that are absolutely fundamental in this kind of this story, if you like. Number one is that humans don't deal with uncertainty well at all. The second one is we don't deal well with complexity at all. And the third one is fear is such a dominant emotional trait in human beings that it could create a distortion of reality and can make us see things in a way that aren't necessarily the way that they are. And I'm not going to delve into uncertainty in too much depth in its own right today. I am going to touch on that more so in, in the second session, but I am going to focus today more, so, more on complexity and more on fear. And I want to start by looking at fear. Now, fear is a really interesting subject matter, actually. When you start delving into fear and you start looking at the subcomponents like anxiety, stress, worry, concern, panic, it becomes a really fascinating subject, especially when people are trying to make a decision where complexity and uncertainty are factored in. And what is a financial plan? What is financial planning if it's not a roadmap to a future that at that point it is, crea is created is uncertain? And therefore you could argue is fear inducing in its own right. Now fear, there's a great quote here from H.P. Lovecraft who was a Victorian horror writer. And, and he wrote this in a, a, one of his quotes about the, the stories he used to write and he said that the oldest, you know, he, the reason why he preyed on fear, because he knew that the oldest and strongest emotion of mankind is fear. But the oldest and strongest kind of fear is the fear of the unknown. Now, if we just pause for a second here and just think about what's going on in the world today. We are currently in the midst of a global pandemic. People are on lockdown Governments are scrambling around trying to figure out what the best thing to do is for both the, 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 the population and the economy and, and our, our health, etc, etc. So everything that we're living in or living through at this point in time is shrouded with uncertainty. And therefore, it's, it's, it, you know, it's obvious why people are fearful and anxious about what's going on. And it's because there is no metaphorical light at the end of the tunnel. People need that routine. They need to understand what's next in order for us to, to rest our brains and just get on with life. And when, we are, when we're surrounded by this uncertainty, it, or as it says on this slide, the unknown, then it creates a very powerful surge of fear in every single human being. And this is hardwired into our biology. 
Now, I, uh, years and years and years ago, I studied human biology and the, the way that the human brain works just from a biological perspective is absolutely fascinating because it triggers things in us that we just don't realize it's, it's triggering. And this is one of those examples. So here I've split the human brain into three kind of simplified sections. The biggest part of the brain by far is the neocortex. And the neocortex is therefore language, reasoning, planning, et cetera, et cetera. At the very, um, at the very bottom, back, back right, if you like, the, uh, at the top of the neck is our reptilian brain. And this is completely autonomous. And it deals with all of the functions that it needs to keep us alive, like breathing and our heart rate. It does everything that we are absolutely not in control of at all. And then at the very kind of, in the center of the brain, if you like, sitting in between the two lobes, is the mammalian part of our brain, which is responsible for our emotions, our memories and our habits and our attachments. Now, in relation to fear, this is really important. There's two of the little structures in this image that I just want to draw out. The first one is the green kind of nut shaped image, which is actually in reality about the size of an almond. That's called the amygdala. And then just sitting in up slightly just north of the amygdala is a, is a part of our brain called the hypothalamus. Now, why am I doing a biology lesson? Well, it's actually crucial to understand what goes on when people are making decisions and fear has been triggered. So what happens is this. Our brain senses fear and a message and the way or the where this is sensed is in the amygdala. And this happens well before we become consciously aware that any element of fear is around us. This is why you hear stories of people who, you know, a very well-known story is, is of a guy who bent down um, in a road to pick up a child who'd fallen over and whipped the child away and turned his head the opposite direction without realizing why. And it's because his amygdala had sensed a car coming from the right hand side and had triggered his body to automatically react to that. There was no conscious effort on his part to do that. It's a really, really powerful process. And the amygdala senses fear and it sends a message to the hypothalamus and it says, I sense fear. We need to go into what we colloquially know as, as fight or flight, which is actually called the sympathetic nervous system. And it tr the, the hypothalamus triggers a series of, of um, of operations which are absolutely phenomenally quick. Typically three, three hundredths of a second this all happens in. And it basically does the following. It dilates the pupils, it focuses our hearing, it stops our mouth producing saliva, it increases our blood flow and our heart rate, our bronchi and our lungs relax so that we can use them to full capacity. It shuts down bodily functions that aren't needed like our gallbladder, our intestines and our stomach and it floods the body with epinephrine or adrenaline. And like I just said, it does all of this in approximately three hundredths of a second. It is incredibly quick, quicker by about 10 times than a blink of an eye. Now, it also does one other thing which is really important to this story. Under the conditions of fear or stress, anxiety, worry, when your sympathetic nervous system is triggered, the brain also shuts down or inhibits the prefrontal cortex. And the prefrontal cortex is the part of our brain that we use to make decisions. So 
I'm stressed. I'm fearful. I'm you know significantly anxious. Immediately, if I go into my if my sympathetic nervous system is triggered, I am immediately in a place a disadvantage in relation to even trying to make a sound rational decision. My biology has just gone completely against me by inhibiting or part or shutting down the part of my brain I need to make a decision. So at once, this is a really crucial part or part of the story in relation to financial planning, because if people are coming to us to talk about their financial plan and they are anxious or they're stressed or worse still, they are fearful, then asking them to make important financial decisions at that point without them being in a calmer place could end up, again, using the same phrase, doing them a disservice. And there is an abundance of research that draws this out. If you look at this particular piece of research, um, which was carried out by Fourth Wellbeing, what they do is they, they look at what how many people um, self-assess themselves as being stressful and how often they exhibit stress. And 87% of the thousands of people who went through the survey said that they experience stress at least once every day. And when they went into the when they went in to look at this, they found that the top three stressors in people's lives in this order were money, work, and health. Now I get that this is also circumstantial. So I would argue that over the last couple of the last 11 weeks of living through a global pandemic, health potentially may have dropped to the top. But but actually, with people being uh, furloughed, and not working, and 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 people being made redundant, I would also guess that work you know work and money were absolutely dominant as well. But actually, the last 11 weeks, all three of these things will have been flipping around and will will have been giving people stress and anxiety and fear and and worry. So money is absolutely a core factor in in the way that we kind of navigate this uncertainty this complexity and this fear now i just want to touch on this a second because i'm using two phrases and, and and often those two phrases aren't used together so we need to remember at this point that fear is a, a is about a real or perceived immediate threat anxiety is the expectation of a future threat or negative outcome so the easiest example I can give you is if you are scared of spiders and I said to you, do you want to come you know, come into my garden shed while we get this tool? And oh, by the way, there's spiders in there that that's not a that's not fear at that point. That is anxiety because you, you haven't been in the shed. You haven't seen anything yet. It's an, it's an anxious state when you go in there and you see the spider. It creates a fear response and anxiety and fear. They don't necessarily need to go anxiety, fear. They actually can go fear, anxiety. Um, but there's not often that those two things become bedfellows and live alongside each other kind of symbiotically. But there is one or a, a couple of things that do this to people and money is one of them. Financial planning is one of them because what it, what they are talking about is, is the anxiety about Will they have enough money for their future? Is, are they saving enough money for their retirement? What does retirement look like? This is all anxiety. And then, of course, when stock markets fall and rise or we experience extreme volatility in the market, that's not anxiety. That's fear because that's a real threat to them. It's immediate. They are feeling it here and now. So as financial professionals, we need to know that people are going through these, these kind of states of 
of emotion, if you like, all of the time. Every time we talk to them about money, every time we talk to them about their financial plan, their future, their retirement, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, there will be degrees of stress, anxiety, fear, worry, panic coursing through their veins at that time. So one of the tips I, I give financial planners around the world when I speak at conferences is we need to make sure that one of the things we do first and foremost before we even get to talk about the financial plan is to make sure that the person is okay and that they are in a mental state that is good and that is good enough for them to answer questions with logic that they are able to engage with you in a, in a way that is correct, that will elicit the right responses. And they're not sitting there kind of stewing in their in their own anxiety and stress. It's a crucial, crucial point. So fear is really, really powerful. And, and as in, in the kind of relation to what's going on in people's heads when they're making these decisions, that is absolutely one area that you need to focus on. The other that I want to touch on is complexity. Now, this is a this is one of a soapbox, a soapbox moment typically for me, because I I as a client of a financial planner, I see the amount of information that I'm bombarded with. And I just think as an industry around the world, I've come across this. We do love to push complexity out and and and, and kind of show the world as a as a as an industry, as a sector, how very, very bright we are using jargons and acronyms and big long words. And and I and I think people just don't get what we're trying to say to them. And and I'm gonna come on on to that more in the third session that I'm gonna do on Friday um, when I talk about how we can communicate with people and what we need to factor in to how we speak to people properly. But if you if we kind of take a step back. We have our biology at play, but actually as a subset of that, there's also two other core things that we have to consider when we are trying to deal with the information we need to make financial decisions. The first one is how we process information. And the second one is our capacity for thinking. Now, sitting in between these two things, which I'm gonna talk about in the second session, are, how, are our heuristics or shortcuts that we take when we make decisions and our behavioral biases. Now, think about the world we operate in. We typically give people information that is complex, or it, it's, it, let's be honest, it's not straightforward. It's typically unengaging. You know, a lot of the questionnaires that we ask people to fill out are kind of 20 questions long, four pages thick, and lots and lots and lots and lots of words and lots and lots of reading to do. It's not really the most engaging way to engage with people. And of course, because we are a regulated industry, there is always the regulatory heavy, you know, um, wording and, and paragraphs that we have to put in there. And I get that. But if you just think about it from a customer's, from a client's perspective, receiving complex, unengaging, regulatory heavy documentation isn't an ideal start in the first place when we're trying to get their brain into a place where they can make the right decision. And when you couple it with our evolution, our biology and our psychology, what in essence we are doing is we are creating a perfect storm in relation to decision making that could end up not in the favor of the client. But of course, it gives us a document where we can tick every one of our boxes we need to tick. But actually, has have we really served the client in the way that they wanted serving when they came in to see us? And, and what 
a, a kind of the core part of the decision-making process that we need them to go through, given we have this kind of regulatory, unengaging, complex starting point, and then our biology is taking over at the same time. Understanding what goes on in the decision-making process equally becomes an important factor to just be aware of. I'm not saying we should understand this to the nth degree, but just having an awareness of something of how that decision works out is also really important. So when we're making a decision, what happens typically is you as my financial planner give me information and I start to read that information. Now, and this, that's the stage here that I'm calling processing, processing information, right? So I'm looking at it and I'm reading it and I'm reading it in a conscious state, but I'm processing the information in an unconscious way. My brain is taking it in and is rattling through it at a, at a rate of knots and it is processing all of the information that's going that I'm, I'm currently reading. At the same time, I'm also trying to determine value in what I'm reading. You know, is this is this what I want to see? Is this what I want to do? This is making sense to me. Do I need to ask for more information, etc., cetera, etc.? Cetera. And again, this happens in my unconscious mind. When I've done that process, what happens is I typically push this forward into my semi-conscious. I become slightly conscious of the fact that I'm thinking about a decision. Now, what what's really important to understand here is that in every decision a human makes, about 90% of every decision we make happens in our unconscious or in our semi-conscious in this example. It, use the word unconscious and you're safe. Every decision we make typically happens, 90% typically happens in our unconscious. So think about this for a second before I click on the next one. We are giving clients information. We are giving them that information in order for them to read it, to understand it, and to make a decision. And yes, we can interact with them and we can say to them, do you understand? Is there anything you want me to explain, et cetera, et cetera. But being unaware that 90%, the majority of the decision they're about to make is happening inside of their unconscious mind makes me, if I were the financial planner, pause and absolutely consider how I'm presenting information to people and what I'm saying. It's absolutely core to ensuring that the decision is right for them. And then, by the way, the only point when this pops at the point when it pops into our head and we become conscious of making a decision, obviously that's conscious, is when we end up taking the decision that we have just made. So uh, the majority of every decision we make sits in our unconscious mind. And of course, that means, therefore, that we are absolutely subjected to behavioural biases and heuristics. It's not possible because they are manifestations of our unconscious thinking processes. So how we process information and our capacity for thinking play a crucial part. And I'm going to delve into those two kind of uh, those, those, those two areas on, on Wednesday when I go through what's, also, what's going on when we make decisions. But I just want to touch on, if I can, behavioral biases here. Not a deep dive yet. That's next, next session. But I just want to touch on a few because it's really important to understand how biases are playing out when we become anxious or stressed or worried. Now, I, I think I showed this slide when um, I presented at the event in February or whenever it was. The amount of behavioural biases is ridiculous. I think some of them are made up. But actually, when you look at the, the literature, the academic literature, there are many, many behavioural biases that have been discovered, that have been deeply researched and have been proven to be a factor in how we make decisions. 
And of course, I get this, that when you as financial planners look at this list, you kind of will, the, the thought process is, where do you start? You know, and actually BIQ, the com- you know, the company that, that I founded, um, this has kind of been our lifeblood, figuring out how do you take the kind of the 300 odd behavioral biases and, and figure out which ones are the most important in relation to financial planning and financial planning decisions. And the reason why I've chosen these five for this session is because these biases can all be supercharged when anxiety visits. We can become highly susceptible to how information is presented to us when we are anxious. We can resort to our own opinions and our own views when we are anxious, confirmation bias. We can become overconfident because we just need to make a decision because it feels horrible and I need to get this off my off my kind of my list, if you like. So we can become very overconfident in, in our abilities and our knowledge. We can often just do what everybody else does because safety in numbers and we can become very loss averse. We can kind of wrap our arms around our money and go, no, I don't want to lose any more. And, and all of these things never arrive independently they all arrive at the same time, like a behavioral bias tsunami. They flood our brain and th- they are attached with ang- anxiety and fear and worry and panic. Complexity attaches itself. You know, all of the things I've talked about flood your clients' brains at the same time. And then we ask them to make a decision off the back of that. So again, understanding that these things are going on gives us on this call the foundation to then go into the next two sessions of this webinar and explain what that really means and what we can therefore do about it. But I want to pick on one of these biases and I want to pick on the top one, framing, because it's one of the most powerful behavioural biases that we have. So framing, just so you know, in case you don't know this, framing is where I make a decision based on how information is presented to me as opposed to the to the, the underlying facts, the evidence, the full picture if you like. So I only take part of a message and I assume that that's the whole message and I make a decision off the back of that. And to illustrate how the, the, the power of this, I just want to show you this one piece of research that, that BIQ do. We, we carry out behavioral bias research all of the time. And this is the one that we finished at the back end of 2019. So what we did is we had three groups of people. Group number one were given that false statement that you can see running along the top of your screen. So an investment return was 5% compared to the expected 4%. The month before it returned 6%. And we asked them a very simple question. Do you think that statement is good or do you think that statement is bad? And the blue circle on the screen represents that control group, the group that saw the full statement. And you can see that nearly 90%, 87% of them thought that that statement was good. What we then did is we only showed people, uh, group number two, what is underlined in green. So we only showed group number two, an investment was 5% compared to the expected 4%. That's it. Then we said, is that statement good or is that statement bad? And by ignoring the back end of that message, you can increase the amount of people who think it's good, not by a great deal, but in this example, to a flat 90%. It's not a great deal, but I still managed to um, manipulate some people into thinking something was good by missing off some information. Then group number three, were only shown what is underlined in red. 
an investment return was 5%. The month before, it returned 6%. Is that good or is that bad? And what happens then is only 32% of people think it's good. That's a decrease of 50% from the control group by just missing out a piece of information. Now, let me just suggest this. As a financial planner, you know that the client is expecting 4%, right? You know this, it's a conversation you've had time and time again. So you think, do you know what? I don't need to put into my document compared to the expected 4% because they know this. It's a conversation I've had many times. I'm gonna miss it out. And I'm just gonna put, oh, this month was 5%, last month was six. Um, there you go. And the way the clients will compute that information is they will not naturally fill in the gaps themselves. They will just read what is presented to them and make a decision off the back of that. So it is absolutely imperative, especially in regards to framing, that we don't jump to assumptions that people just will fill in the dots, the gaps themselves, because that's just not how the brain has been evolved or is wired to work. The brain has evolved to fill in the gaps that are missing so we can make sense of the world. And this is beautifully illustrated in one of the best illusions I've ever seen called the Kinitsa Triangle, a Sicilian mathematician who designed this. And what he basically says is it's quite easy to show people a jumbled mess. Whether it, it, this, is, this is information, this is data, but it's in a mess. And it's, it's three little Pac-Men, if you like, and three chevrons. But what I can do is I can get the brain to fill in gaps and to see information that doesn't exist by putting all of this into a different order. And if I just flip it all around and then I ask you this question, how many triangles can you see? Now, what I get, and I've, again, I've done this around the world at conferences, and I've got hundreds of responses to this question. The answer typically ranges from two. People can see six. Some people can see eight. Um, but of course, the real answer is there isn't any triangle in there at all. There isn't one triangle in this, in this illustration or not one completed triangle because the white space in the middle is a white space. The chevrons on the outside don't have a bottom line, so they're chevrons. And the Pac-Man hasn't got a, a, a line along the bottom to complete that triangle. And yet the brain looks at this information and it sees things and it jumps to conclusions without actually pausing and thinking, actually, there is none. Now, when you do this with people, and you can Google this and search for it yourself, when you put this in front of people and just say, how many triangles can you see? Two, three. And then when you say to them, how many are there? Once they've slowed down, once they've looked at it for a long enough time, they go, oh, there aren't any. And that's when they see the answer. So our job as a financial planner is to help clients cut through the noise and to get to the truth, the evidence as quickly as they can and not allow the, the former part, this kind of gut feel to dominate, dominate their thought process. And we see this kind of playing out in real life all of the time. So if you just look at the, you know, this is a, an amazing piece of research. So uh, the, the CII in the US looked at causes, I, I'm bringing the tone down slightly here, causes of death around the world. In blue, real causes. In green, how people think they're going to die. And in yellow, the press coverage that those areas get. So you can see that the real, you know, in the Western world, especially the biggest killer of people is heart disease. Hardly anybody thinks they're going to die of that. And then if you look at terrorism and murder on the right hand side, 
the reality is that they are very small in the in statistical terms of the real causes of death of people and yet because they are covered by the press all the time people blow reality um, out of all proportion and believe that actually that is a more statistically significant event than the reality portrays this is called probability neglect as well and i'm going to come on to that in session number two so understanding about these behaviors just isn't good enough so take framing as an example i can understand i know everybody on this call has framing bias but what i need to understand as a financial planner is where on the scale of susceptible to resilient you sit because that changes how i converse, converse with you are you more resilient or are you more susceptible and if i understand where you sit but more to the point I understand that for every single one of my clients, then the way that I speak to the susceptible group is fundamentally different from the way that I speak to the people who are resistant. The narrative I deliver changes because I know that one is going to look at everything on face value and just go with it. The other are going to dig deeper and start to explore the evidence. And all of this kind of concept of behavioral bias and its strength and its influence, I'm going to cover off in session number two. So make sure you kind of come back on Wednesday to hear part two of this where I delve into that. So to summarize everything I've kind of talked about in session one, number one, we need to remember that anxiety and fear are in our DNA. They are just who we are. We are emotional creatures and it's, it doesn't take a great deal to trigger our sympathetic nervous system and put us into a place where making decisions becomes really, really difficult. Remember that our uh, when we are making a decision, the majority of that decision making process happens in our unconscious mind. From processing to determining the value to analysing whether we should be taking the decision in the first place happens with our conscious thought. So we need to be aware that people will rapidly make a decision and the process that they arrived at to get to that decision happened in their unconscious mind. Number three, remember that when we are anxious, stressed or worried or panicking or we are in an emotional state, certain behavioral biases that we have can get supercharged and can absolutely become the dominant factor in how people are making decisions. So we need to be aware of this. And when we are meeting and speaking to our clients, don't just jump straight in with both feet to having a conversation about the financial plan. Make sure that if we know that they are coming to us in a state of emotion, that the first job on our agenda is to get them into a place where they feel calm and safe and that they are okay and that they can now move forward to make a decision. Number four is know your client. And I've said, I kind of use this phrase in its loosest term, but what I mean by that is everything I've just talked about. Make sure that you have a deeper understanding of how your client navigates the world that they are in. How do they understand and compute information that we're presenting to them? Not to know your client, that is a regulatory requirement. I mean, know your client, really understand them. Number five is that once you've done that, is to augment the, uh, the financial planning journey with, the, this, with behavioral insights because every human being is behavioral. And our behavior is the core factor behind the success or failure of our financial plan. So why would I not consider augmenting that journey with kind of evidence-based behavioral insight? And, oh, and remember in this entire story so far that the future is absolutely behavioral. The future is experiential. The human to human relationship is absolutely core to the success of financial planning 
in my view. And it's about knowing your client. It's about knowing yourself. You know, at the end of the day, we're all human beings. We all suffer with behavioral biases. And it's about understanding your practice, every one of your clients put together. What does that mean for you and your business? And, and where are where do you have vulnerabilities, et cetera, et cetera? And you in this equation are absolutely core. And I'm going to come on to this in real detail in the third session on Friday, the role of the advisor. So let me wrap up today and then hand back to Nick. My parting thoughts after, after session one. We are all human, everyone on this call, which means we are all susceptible to anxiety, worry and fear. It's just in our DNA. It's who we are. And that doesn't make it wrong. It just makes us human. Our aim, everybody on this call, is to work with clients to allow them or to, to get them to achieve financial well-being. So therefore, understanding the unconscious behaviors that drive their decisions is absolutely crucial for this. We can't ignore that. We absolutely need to understand that. The shortcuts that we take, heuristics and our behavioral biases play a significant role in this. So understanding not just that a bias exists, but its strength and where they sit on that arc, if you like, from weak to strong, changes the narrative. It changes how I deliver my financial planning and my advice. But ultimately, understanding what's going on in a client's head, not what they tell you, not the subjective self, but the objective reality is absolutely crucial in order to deliver the, 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 the plan. So session one, done and dusted, being human during times of uncertainty. Next session, I'm going to delve into behavioral biases and heuristics, and I'm going to make that kind of interactive as I can. But until that point, I hope you found today useful and I will hand back to Nick. I think there's some fantastic insights. So thank you very much for that. Uh, Neil, I've got a question around um, saying, what do I say to clients who are suffering from all the fear and anxiety and uncertainty and are panicking and watching the markets and social media daily and as an advisor contacting me very regularly and almost want to change their decisions, what's happened on the market the previous day? It, it, Nick, <laughs> what a great question. I, I was speaking on a webinar on Friday and a, and a remarkably similar question came up. And, and, and it's the, it goes back to my opening slides where, you know, society is evolving quicker than the, the human brain is. And social media is a, is a bane in most people's lives. They don't realize it, but it is. Because the problem we have is we now have access to more information immediately than we ever have in the history of humankind. Which means I can go onto Google and I can type in anything I want and get a, an answer to anything I want within, within seconds. That creates a real double-edged sword. One, it's amazing because now I don't have to physically travel to a library to get a book to find an answer. I can just sit at my desk and do that. That's that's amazing ability, right? But the 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 the, the other side of that kind of that double-edged sword is it creates an absolute abundance of noise. It it presents us with far too many opinions and views from other people who aren't in a position to give an opinion or a view. And the, the, sad, the sad thing about the whole thing of social media is people start to spout their opinions and their views as if it's fact. And in a world where we are bombarded with information and we need to make decisions quite quickly, unfortunately what happens is people haven't got the mental capacity or the physical time to try and search for the truth, 
to search for the evidence they need to make a decision. So we we stumble upon something that sounds like it's up from a place of authority. It sounds like they know what they're talking about. And we use that as our kind of our, um, our, our truth point to make a decision. So my tip to everybody, especially financial plans with clients, is to tell their clients that, you know, or ask them the question, where did you, how did you make this decision? You know, and, and get them to kind of articulate the process they've been through. To, so if they come to you and they say, oh, the markets are too volatile. I need to get out. I've been reading this. I don't like it. Blah, blah, blah. You need to say, OK, I, I completely hear what you're saying. And, and we let's explore that. But I'd like to understand, how did you get to this place in the first place? What have you been looking at? What have you been reading? What have you been listening to? And get them to explain that process, because what it will inevitably reveal is that some fool on Twitter has said something that has been retweeted and it's become, uh, people believe it's that is the truth and, the, and it induces fear in themselves. So part of, I use this phrase, Nick, and I'm going to come on to this in, in the second part of financial planners have two jobs in my view in the world in 2020. One is a financial planner and the other one is a co-pilot helping their clients navigate the world around them and helping them cut through the noise and helping them find the truth. So I think part of that is having those adult conversations, but also as a step one is saying to a client, how did you get to this place in the first place? Let's explore that process. And that's where they can really come in and show their expertise, but not saying to the client that they're wrong because of course the client feels this. So for them, it's right. It's not saying you're wrong and I'm right. It's about having that conversation with the client, understanding where it came from and, and hopefully molding them into a place where they can down and only look at the evidence. So that that's one of the biggest tips that I can give anybody on the call. Great. Um, we, we've got a few um, different kinds of questions here. The, the one is, is a question which just asks, uh, it sounds like in these environments, the, the human interaction and the coaching is a part that adds an extraordinarily large amount of value. How do you see artificial intelligence, robo, can they ever mimic this human coaching or is this really where advisors can differentiate themselves? Uh, the latter by a country mile. I go on and on about the human, you know, and uh, and the human to human relationship with a financial planner and their client. And, you know, if you just think of some things that are distinctly human, so empathy, Right. A machine will never be able to replace empathy because we've spent five and a half million years. We are fine tuned machines in understanding how to interact with another human being. We we are fine tuned in picking up cues from our interactions with people where you just know that they're not OK, even though they're saying, yeah, I'm all right. You know, they're not. And a machine could never replicate that because that is kind of millions of years of evolution. And it's a it's a it's a deep rooted empathetic feeling that we have where you can, you know, and empathy is kind of there's two strands to empathy, cognitive empathy, which is where you just you know how someone is feeling because you've been there before. So, for example, and sorry, this is the easiest is bringing the back down again here. You know, if, if, if a friend of yours father dies, then and your father's already died, you know how they are feeling because you've been through that experience. So you can have cognitive empathy with them. But if my father dies, me and my sisters, we I would have effective empathy with them. I would be feeling what they are feeling because because it, it, it's, it's our dad. So I've, empathy is a crucial part that a machine can, it just can't. I, I 
my opinion, I don't think that could ever be replaced by a machine. So the advisors in 2020, ignore robo, you know, they, they, they are they are trying to replicate the commoditized part of this industry, picking funds, building models, the process. They'll never replace the human to human relationship. And you, every advisor on this call knows this. And I did this, Nick, at the conference that we were at, that you, that you asked me kindly to speak at. When you walk up to another human being and you put your hand on their shoulder and you say, I can hear you, I understand you, or I'm here. The power of that, we always underplay because it's just such a familiar thing to us. Machines can't do that to people. So I think the role of the human in this in this human to human business that we're in as, as has just been elevated to become the differentiator between advice, financial planning and the robo, the tech solutions that are out there trying to only deliver the commoditized part of the journey. I think we've got time for, for one more question. And, and I guess it's a, a, a common, difficult conversation that a number of advisors are having to have with their clients at the moment. So, so what behavioral insight can you give to have the tough conversation when a client just doesn't have enough and is mm. going to have to reduce their drawdown, perhaps from the annuity, reduce their, the payments that they need to live on? How does one have that conversation from a, a behavioral perspective? There's a there's a couple of so so I I touched on behavioural biases and part and on a Wednesday like I said I'm going to go into more depth on this and and I'll give an example actually of the similar situation on 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 Wednesday, but actually behavioural so behavioural biases right are in my view and the work we do there's no such thing as good or bad behaviours there are our behaviours that are unique to me. And they typically are formed through nature, nurture and nature and my values and my core principles. All of those things kind of make me behave in a particular way. So it's not right or wrong. It's it's just how Neil Bage is navigating the world and behaving. Now, I am full of behavioral biases. And um, people often see them as negative things, but actually they can be used in a really good way. So, for example, probability neglect or mental accounting, which I'm touching on on Wednesday, could absolutely be helped to frame conversations in a way that says to somebody, look, you know, the, the plan is the plan. You might need to, if you want to get to this point in the future, there's no way that you can do this on the on the contribution level, on the risk profile. What can we change? Well, we can't change the risk profile because that's wholly behavioral but we can change the contribution level. You might need to take less at this point. And it's about framing that conversation, Nick. It's about saying, you know, and it's about asking questions that draw on coaching skills. So it's not trying to get to a place where the, the answers will be closed questions, but actually it's an open dialogue. And it asks people questions like, you know, when you, you, know, when you retire at 60, what does day one after 60 look like? And get them to tell you that the vision and, and and from those conversations, you can start to draw the, the elements you need to figure out, actually, do you know what? This plan is a great plan, but maybe they don't need as much as they think they do. Yes, in some cases, they may think they need more, but it's about framing those conversations in a way where we utilize what's going on in the person's unconscious to get them on the same page, so to speak. And in session two, I'm going to touch on several of these biases and, and the answer to this question will actually become much more apparent at that point. Thank you, Neil. Uh, thank you very much for a fascinating presentation and thank you to everyone for attending. As Neil said, uh, a reminder uh, to dial in on Wednesday at 10 a.m. where we're going to go a bit deeper into what is going inside 
uh, your clients' minds, as well as giving some sort of practical, interactive tips. Hope you all have a wonderful day and keep safe. Thank you. Negroup Collective Investments is an authorised collective investment scheme manager in terms of the Collective Investment Schemes Control Act. Negroup Investments does not provide advice on financial products and will only give you factual information. For further details on our funds and to view our terms and conditions, please visit negroupinvestments.co.za.